0: gentlemen. here. Please welcome the Tennessee Stud Ron
2: Fuller and your host, Jeff Maldren. Welcome everybody to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm Jeff Baldren, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. And now the man of the hour, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff. Glad to be here, my man. Uh, we're lighting
1: and saddled up and think we got another good one today.
2: Uh, looking Alrighty. forward to it. Well, Ron, before we start today, uh, as the day we record on Tuesday, today is the day that unfortunately the family of Rocky Johnson is burying uh, their father, their uh, their husband. So uh, maybe share with us some memories uh, of your time with Rocky Johnson.
1: Well, you know, I, I wasn't really lucky enough to spend a whole lot of time with Rocky I actually only met Rocky uh, about uh, three years ago. My brother and I. You, there's a meeting in Tampa, Florida, and, uh, at a restaurant. They do it about every other month. Uh, Brian Blair uh, ha- actually hosts those things, and wrestlers from all around the Tampa area come there. and And Rob introduced me to Rocky Johnson, and and uh, I just uh, I was really taken by what a what a classy gentleman he was, and and I could see that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I could see the rock in him, you know, basically, too. You know, he's and and what he did for wrestling is just truly amazing. Uh, and, and I know he was respected and admired by by everybody. A really, really nice guy. And and uh, we're losing him so fast now. I Just uh, thank you for bringing that up. I, I would like to recognize him today. And I wish I hadn't had an opportunity to spend more time with him and knew more about him never got the chance to wrestle with him. Um, and he never worked for me in any of my territories. Uh, but, uh, he certainly, uh, he certainly produced a great wrestler out, out of his son. And, uh, and I did was lucky enough to work for his, uh, his, mother, Miss Maiva and, uh, in Hawaii on my way to Australia in 1983. So, uh, you know, I, I do have some history with that family. Uh, But uh, I just, uh, I would like to give my uh, prayers and condolences, obviously, to the family. And what a great wrestling family that is.
2: Yeah, Ron, so far 2020 is not starting off well. We've had quite a few losses uh, for it being this early in the year.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I hope that doesn't continue for the whole year. That's a bad trend to start off
2: the year with. So, Ron, where where are we going today?
1: Well, we're going to begin today with the first Coliseum show, 1976. Going to be on Sunday afternoon, January 18th. We're going to talk about four other cities that we're running Southeastern uh, that week that have never had Southeastern wrestling before. This is our first time there. We're going to describe the great TV on Saturday, January 17th. This is the day before this Sunday afternoon Coliseum show. We're going to talk, tell, I'm going to tell a special story this week. That's alluded to earlier in this show, this Saturday television program by Homer O'Dell and any kind of leaves less hanging. he doesn't really tell him what this uh, what it was all about, and I'm going to get a chance to answer that question later in the show. And I think that's a good example here of, of what I kind of pointed out last week in the, in our learning tree. Uh, if if it had been the days uh, t- type of program, uh, scripted and everything, there wouldn't have been an opportunity for me to do this. But in that program in 1976, I had an opportunity to tell the rest of the story that Homer left out. And I guess that's, uh, you know, that's back to what we talked about, the difference between the territories uh, back in 76 and what the things are today. So I'm also going to cover the results of the Coliseum show. I'm going to give people a breakdown of the entire week's numbers, the attendance figures, the payoffs. And, uh, you know, I still got a growing crew and back in 76 uh, and getting better every week. Uh, we're going to close the day, as we always will from now on in the Studcast, with another learning tree segment. And it's going to kind of be a follow-up to last week's great learning tree question that, uh, you know, led me to talk about comparing 1976 to today's wrestling. And this one leads kind of perfectly into, it's like a continuation almost of that question. Today, we're going to dig deep into an, another question, and uh, it's it's what happened to professional wrestling. So uh,
2: that should be interesting, too. That'll be at the end of the program. So okay. that's what we got for today, my man. Okay, sounds like a great one, Ron. Tell us about the first Southeastern Wrestling Coliseum show of 1976.
1: We had been in Chilhowee Park most of the time for quite a bit here, and this is one of the first Coliseum shows we've had in a while since November of '75. And we start uh, we're starting to really become a legitimate NWA territory uh, by early '76. Uh, The addition of guys like Tanaka is proof of that. You know, I mean, he's on that card on that Sunday afternoon. The opening match for that show was Les Thatcher against Jerry Myatt, Dennis Hall. Who's an experienced wrestler? Uh, had been former partners with Les Thatcher, as a matter of fact, and he's in the second match against Superstar Number One, and uh, that was a great Dick, dick done. I mean, uh, for Southern wrestling fans, that's a name they probably know. There were two semifinal Southeastern Wrestling Championship Tournament matches on this card. The winner of these two matches obviously are going to wrestle the following week for the Southeastern Championship Belt. And they'll be crowned the first ever Southeastern Heavyweight Champion. The first semifinal match on that Sunday is Ron Wright against Superstar Number Two. Superstar Number Two was Leon Tarzan Baxter, a tremendous worker, a great shooter. The second was the main event anywhere in the country. Jimmy Golden against the, the new monster himself, uh, making his second appearance, toward Tanaka. And then the last show, uh, in studcast number 130, we talked about how General Homer Odell acquired the services of Tanaka by handing him a handful of $100 bills uh, where Homer's going to be in Tanaka's corner. I evidently had enough money there that Tanaka was swayed, and and now all of a sudden, Homer's got him three guys that he's managing. There's a six-man tag elimination match on that card. Uh, these tag matches, uh, the elimination type of tag match, it's two teams, of three guys on each team, obviously. And as a guy's beaten, they call it an elimination match. uh, He has to go to the dressing room. So sometimes this thing could end up with three guys against one. Uh, It's a pretty good match for fans. They really love that type of match. And, uh, you know, the match continues until all three have lost on one team. The other team obviously wins. Ron Wright and I had been wrestling against the Tennessee Tag Champions, Norvell Austin and Butch Malone, quite a bit. Uh, Don Wright had come in to manage one week. Now he came back uh, to be handcuffed to Homer Odell one week. And now this is a, he's in this six-man elimination match with me. Don is still there. But Ron is in, like I said, he's he's in that still in the Southeastern tournament. And it's understandable that he wants to go ahead and take his shot at maybe winning the Southeastern Championship. So I wanted to find a partner for me and Don that kind of kept the hard deal in the family, so to speak. And and I came up with one, my dad, Buddy Fuller. So uh, in this six-man tag, it's going to be Austin Malone and General Homer Dodell who's actually going to be in that match against Don Wright, my dad, and myself. And this might have been an even better combination and draw more money than the other one because my dad was a pretty decent star in Knoxville. Uh, from years earlier, he had wrestled there quite a bit. So the final match on that card is the Southeastern Lights Out match. Uh, and that means that this match is no time limit. It was no DQ. It's non-sanctioned by the National Wrestling Alliance. And after all the other matches on the card, it's finished. Uh, Robert Fuller's in this one and Don Carson. They both come to the ring. They extinguish the lights in the building, kind of like the hockey deal, and uh, for 10 seconds. And when the lights come back up, the announcer declared, that the match wasn't sanctioned by the National Wrestling Alliance and was not officially a part of the National Wrestling Guard. So uh, he set the parameters for the match. So uh, on that Sunday afternoon, we had six great matches in all and and pretty darn good ones, worthy of going into the Coliseum.
2: So, Ron, let me ask you, uh, you mentioned a name there right at the start, and that's Dick Dunn. And I know Dick Dunn is a, a name that's uh, got a lot of legend around it in the uh, southeastern area and the southern part of the country. But let's take a little quick trip to the learning tree, if you don't mind. Tell the fans about what was great about Dick Dunn. What made Dick Dunn special?
1: Uh, Dick Dunn—he's one of those guys that had natural ability. He wasn't—he was not a bodybuilder. He he knew a little bit of shooting because my dad trained him, and uh, Dad didn't train anybody without training them how to wrestle and how to how to hurt somebody if they needed to. But uh, Dick didn't have a body on him, but he he was just a tremendous worker in the ring, and his greatest attribute was his ability to the psychology of the sport. He just knew how to make people hate him, and uh, you know, and then he he actually worked as a babyface quite a bit in the Gulf Coast territory before I went down there and bought it. And, uh, you know, I was surprised at that. I had never seen him work babyface, but I know he was very strong there, too. Uh, He was a great performer. I was lucky to have him on my card. I had him with Tarzan Baxter as the two superstars. That was a phenomenal team. And at this point in uh, Southeastern's time frame and uh, just getting rolling, you couldn't have two better, better guys than that. Okay, so what
2: happened on the TV shows the day before this card?
1: It was, as all shows uh, before the Knoxville event, it's designed to promote the Coliseum card the very next day. So we opened the show up on this one with a real bang. Uh, DeVoy Brunson, a young guy, is in the ring with Phil Rainey, and he gets announced first. And then Tanaka and his new manager, General Homer O'Dell, you know, appear around the corner from the way that studio was set up. They could not see who was coming. And when he appears and followed by Homer O'Dell... Uh, again, the studio went silent just like they did the week before when he busted that big concrete block with his forehead. You know, and I'd never seen that before two weeks in a row that uh, he just chilled the audience. Uh, so uh, it seemed that the fans were scared to boo him, you know. So Homer went in the ring with Tanaka and held up his hand when he got introduced. And uh, Homer had the biggest grin on his face i may maybe ever seen. It was like he was so proud that, oh my gosh, look who I have. It's my man, uh, you know, and uh, and I think the fans at home kind of grasped that too. And boy, the booze came then, you know, and it was mostly for Homer, I believe. So Homer left the ring, the bell rang, and Tanaka. I mean, he pulverized that poor DeVoy Brunson. Uh, he hit him with chops, he hit him with slams, he hit him with stomps, and finally he mercifully covers him, you know. And it's about to be over, and Homer, Homer, don't want it. He either isn't ready yet for it, or he's enjoying it so much he wants to see some more. So he has him pull Brunson up two times when he could have beat him. And then uh, finally Homer says, okay, you can beat him. And uh, so he 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 beat him. And then uh, Norvell and Butch Malone, who weren't in the match, weren't in the studio, they came charging around there and jumped up in the ring. They were as excited as the victory as, as Homer was. And they'd almost knocked Homer down, getting in the ring. Homer's trying to get in and they're trying to get in. And they all ran to Tanaka. You'd have thought Tanaka won the NWA world title. It was like, wow. But it was great because the fans, they just booed them even more. And uh, so they went to straight to the set for their interview. And, Homer was there on the set. He was gushing about his new man and his tag team champions. And Austin and Malone, they just kept high-fiving each other. And there stood Tanaka, man, like a like an immense statue of stone, man. <laughs> Homer bragging about him, man, being only two wins away now from being the Southeastern Heavyweight Champion. And uh, Homer continued with how sorry he was for poor Jimmy Golden, who had to get in the ring with this guy. And then he slept. Tanaka, you know, and I don't think Tanaka was expecting it at all. And Homer reached up and slapped him across the chest as hard as he could. Tanaka never even flinched. It was like he was made out of rock. Uh, Then Homer switched gears. And I think he did because he kind of got scared. Tanaka got mad, but I don't think Tanaka even got mad. He didn't even worry about it. So Homer then started to talk about his tag teams and, uh, you know, about the next day's six-man tag, elimination tag. And uh about my old man B- Buddy Fuller, you know, <laughs> and uh the, the after and what he said as something like, you know, after i we eliminate those other two guys, I want Buddy Fuller to be in there with us by himself. And he and then he says, uh, I want to get even for something he did to me personally in Atlanta, Georgia, nineteen sixty-six. And he was telling these guys very seriously, something I'll never forgive and I'll never forget, you know. And so Les picked up on it. He said, hey, uh, what, what is that? What, what are you talking about? And then Homer rounded up his troops and he just kind of left the set. You know, it was a great opening to the show, but he kind of left that question unanswered. So second match of the day is Ron Wright. Man, when he entered the studio, wow, they went crazy. Wright got a quick win over Phil Hickerson, who's going to be a star. And wrestling pretty darn soon. He's from the west side of Tennessee. And him and uh, Dennis Condry are going to form one of the best teams ever in the 70s. Then, uh, you know, after right one pretty quickly, he went to the set for another two-minute interview. And uh, he waited for the commercial break. And then as soon as the red light came back on, which is your cue that uh, you're on, Uh, Boy, he ripped into the superstars as soon as the light went on, uh, especially his opponent, uh, superstar number two, which was Tarzan Baxter. Tremendous talent. And then he got real serious about uh, what it would mean for him to win the tournament and become the first ever Southeastern Heavyweight Champion and uh, get that beautiful belt. And it happened to be the belt sitting on the front of the desk had been displayed there for weeks during the course of this tournament. And then he went on with how he was becoming a legend in Tennessee. And he'd held almost every championship in the history of the state. Fans just got into it. They, and the longer he went, the the more they cheered. And then he got into the, one of those phases that he, almost like he's preaching a sermon, man. He's, and uh, he reached a crescendo there at the end, man. When he got into my, I'm on Tennessee dog him. And by then he really had him. And uh, when he finished, there wasn't anybody in that studio that wasn't on their feet. You know, it was Ron Wright's classic way of working that magic that he was famous for. The next segment's personality profile. And I decided this time that I wanted us to do it live because it's going to be with three guests. It's uh, Don Wright, myself, and my dad is going to be on this personality profile. First time, Les had had three people as a guest on his profile. And less kept up with the normal standards of all our personality profiles. He tried to talk about subjects other than upcoming matches and particular buildings and that type of stuff. And he asked Don Wright, one of his questions was how proud, are, are you of your brother, Ron, who's who's getting close to becoming possibly the new Southeastern champion? You know, Don had some great comments about his brother. The, he, he and Don had a great relationship. And then he asked my father a question, I think, about, uh, you know, how he felt about having two famous wrestling sons. And, you know, Dad was kind of, he was laid back uh, in these interviews a lot. Uh, he was a little different than uh, than the style of a lot of other people. Uh, usually when he made interviews, people, once they saw his ability, they knew he meant it. And didn't have to get too excited. Let's finish this thing by asking dad, you know, he said earlier in the program, Homer O'Dell said you had done something to him in 1966. And can you tell us what he's talking about? So, uh, dad was kind of like, well, you know, he, he, it was what it did is it created a spontaneous moment for me. Dad kind of less laid back on it. And he was always kind of humble. And then he answered the question, something about, well, uh, you know, it probably had something to do with the Georgia heavyweight championship years ago. And, and he said, I kind of regretted what happened that night and I don't really want to talk about it. And he was about to, Les was about to close out the profile. And And I remembered that match, and I stopped him. I said, wait, 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 you don't want to talk about it. I said, but I want to talk about it. Uh, I told him what it was, the story. I said, I was 18 years old. I stand on the stage in the Atlanta Auditorium, 1966, and I'm watching you wrestle Buddy Colt for the Georgia Heavyweight Championship, Buddy Colt's managed by Homer O'Dell. And there was a special stipulation in that match. I'm like, remind the dead about the match. Well, he remembered the match, you know, and I said, there was a special stipulation. If you won the title and beat Colt, you got five minutes alone with Homer. And then uh, I said, uh, and you beat Colt. And uh, after close to an hour match, he beat Colt. And, uh, you know, Colt went to the dressing room and you had Homer alone. And I said, I remember uh, that you were tired and you had your back turned and they rang the bell and Homer jumped you from behind. And he really took over on you for about two minutes of that match, maybe even close to three. And I said, then you made one of those classic comebacks, you know, and those 9,000 packed fans in the auditorium went absolutely crazy. And you had Homer flying all over the ring. And I said, I remember. 30 seconds or so left in that five-minute match that were calling the time down, you put the fuller leg lock on him. And he was probably truly, no. you know, Homer had a lot of heat. He was probably one of the most hated managers in Georgia wrestling history. And Dad broke his leg. And uh, Colt and other heels came down. They carried those Homer's old fat butt out of there back to the dressing room. And it was one of those times that I'd kind of made the right decision to do this profile live because the studio audience got into the story. And, uh, that story would have gone untold if we'd pre-recorded the program. So the studio crowd popped to the story. And dad was a sharp veteran and he sat there and the, you know, crowd was kind of went crazy when they heard he broke his leg. You know, they were really, really into it. And he waited until the, the reaction died down. The cheers died down low enough that he could be heard. And he turned to less and he said, you know, he said tomorrow night, I might just break his other leg. (laughs) So He got another explosion. So, uh, It was, for me, it was chill bump time. I mean, wow. I never went into that profile thinking anything like that was going to happen. And it was the great thing about the personality profile. As compared to today's shows, it was not scripted. Everything just happened spontaneously. And that's what wrestling was all about back in this time frame. Show was going better than I could have ever imagined at this point. Third match was certainly not going to let me down (laughs) because it's Don Carson. And as soon as he comes into the studio and he's escorted by the superstars, oh my gosh, they they had him. Fans were just uh, going crazy. They they hated these guys. They really were getting some heat at this point. So fans already considered I think Don Carson as the top heel and and, and they made it pretty plain. Uh, you couldn't hardly hear the introduction over the crowd's boos and Carson took a young wrestler from Georgia That was destined for stardom. A kid named Jerry Stubbs in that match. One of his very first matches ever for Southeastern in any way. And Carson loaded his glove that match and busted him. And uh, poor Jerry bled all over the ring, man. It was pretty nasty. In fact, the referee never let Carson pin him. He just stopped the match and raised Carson's hand because uh, Stubbs was really bad. Carson and the superstars, they went to the set after the match with Les and they made the third interview of the show. Superstar 2, obviously, he's bragging like crazy about how he was going to beat Hillbilly Ron Wright the next day, and he'll be one match away from being the Southeastern champion. Carson congratulated him like he'd already won. Man, pat him on the back, said, oh, yeah, of course you're going to beat him, man. No big deal. And then Carson got into, as he called him, poor young Robert Fuller. And he focused, I guess, on what everyone had just seen, you know, uh, that all that blood on poor Stubbs and, uh, and he apologized. He said, I want to apologize to that young kid up there that I just made a bloody mess out of. But I want Robert Fuller to realize that tomorrow afternoon he's going to look a lot worse. And he said, I'm kind of glad, you know, that Ron Fuller's got his daddy in town. He goes, it's going to be really fun for me. But he says, because they're going to have to come down and carry that boy out of the ring and take him down to the hospital to get sewed up. So uh, fans obviously didn't like it, but Carson sure as heck liked it. Show closed with Robert in the last match live. Fans love Rob, uh, you know, and he made quick work out of big old Don Lambrick, who was a big guy. Uh, Jimmy joined him at the set for the last interview of the show. They got a great ovation from the crowd. Jimmy was perfect, man. He had that, that handsome, humble, young baby face uh, saying how proud he was to get to the semifinals of a huge tournament like this Southeastern tournament. And, uh, hey, he was by far the youngest competitor left in the deal. There's only four people left. And after seeing Tanaka, who was his opponent the next day, he said, I ought to be scared. I think he said something like I ought to be scared, but I'm a part of the one of the biggest wrestling families that's ever been. And I'm going to make them proud. I'm going to get past Tanaka and I'm going to be the Southeastern champion. Well, it's Robert's time. He tore into Carson. Obviously he said something about, uh, yes, he wasn't accustomed to lights out matches. You know, Carson bragged about how many lights out matches he'd won. And Rob said, no, I, don't, I hadn't been in many lights out matches. And, uh, But, uh, you know, he said, I come from the same family Jimmy does. And he goes, I'm going to shock the wrestling world tomorrow because I'm going to beat that poor old man, Don Carson, half to death. But uh, the crowd loved that part of it, too. So it was a great ending to a great television show. And uh, we're going to know the results uh, in less than 24 hours of
2: of how many people are going to show up for it. Okay, so, Ron, I have a question here, and I hope it's not a real long-winded one like usual. So – I want to ask you as a promoter, uh, and especially here in this case, when your dad's coming in and he's working a card, you have let's just say an older veteran who's not really working that much who's coming in. Used to be a big name, so you're you know you're popping a little crowd there because you've got a recognizable star that's coming back. Every territory, I think, uh, during the '60s, '70s into the '80s, did something like this. You know, famously, Bill Watts did the Last Stampede down in Mid South and and such. So, how do you, as a promoter? Book that veteran and give them the respect that they deserve while at the same time not killing the heat that's on your heels. Well, a lot of times my
1: dad, being an old pro man and being a promoter himself and having done it all and seen it all, he never minded how he got treated. Uh, In fact, he used to come in and he wanted to put my heels over. And, uh, you didn't get that a lot of times when you had other guys come in that were former stars, they wanted kind of to be taken care of, but my dad didn't have much of an ego. He was a business guy. He, I mean, he wanted to do something right for your territory. And, uh, he's going to do some stuff in the next couple of years that that's freaky. I mean, uh, that I scared, I was scared that he was going to get hurt. Uh, so in this case, you know, I don't take any special plans for him. I, I don't give him any special treatment. He just goes out there and does the deal. Uh, and, uh, he, he just a consummate pro man. I mean, he, he, he just amazing well, what he you does. Will,
2: you will admit though, that that is the exception to the rule.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh yes. Now I'm saying, you know, he's my dad and, and, you know, and he's, he's coming in and he's working for his son who's just trying to build his first company and, he got no ego here. He He's like, what can I do to help you, man? But yeah, you got other stars as time goes by, and you bring those other people in, and, and that, that can be a little bit touchy. You know, it's really funny, though. I don't know why, but I, I always had such a great relationship with my talent. I never had guys came in that, that didn't just want to do whatever I wanted. Uh, I never had an argument with people which was really strange and you know and I had all kinds of bookers say oh boy you don't want to work with him you know hell I had one of the most difficult workers of all time everybody hated to have him in their territory uh, the Mongolian stomper Archie Goldie I mean He had the worst reputation and I brought him into Knoxville. He never left. I mean, he became a best friend. It was like, wow, this guy had anybody have any problems with him? So, yeah, but that's a great question, Jeff. I mean, you know, when you bring these big former stars in, you've kind of got to coddle them a little bit. Some guys have to, Uh, I just kind of said, Hey, you know, you're on the card uh, and you're kind of like one of the boys in the crew. And, you're here to do business tonight, and uh, and, and guys kind of
2: got the idea
1: that well, okay, yeah, let's let, let's do that. So uh, it was
2: easy for me in a way. Okay, so what were the results of the Coliseum show, and what other cities did you run that same week?
1: Well, Les Thatcher ran the open. He won that opening match against Jerry Myatt. Uh, Superstar One defeated Dennis Hall. Uh, Ron Wright won his way into the finals of the tournament. He beat Superstar Number Two. And uh, he beat him because Superstar 1 came down, got involved in the end of it, and they end up causing his own partner to lose. But they got even before they left the ring. Boy, they both jumped in on him, and they they pounded him pretty good till his brother ran down there to try to help him get out of there. And uh, so, you know, it ended up with uh, Ron Wright moving on to the finals. Uh, We recorded that match. uh, And the next one, too, uh, and that was with Tanaka. And Tanaka... Well, he he beat Jimmy, but he he had to have the help of Homer. Homer got involved on the very end of it, and Jimmy was looking really good. Uh, the crowd was really into that match because I think they thought Tanaka was impossible to beat, and uh, Jimmy made a great showing for a young guy. He got himself over in losing, and that's pretty hard to do. So, six man tag: my father and Don Wright, myself. We won that tag. Uh, Austin and Malone. Against those guys, uh, they got eliminated, and uh, it ended up me in the ring with Homer by myself at the end of it. And uh, when I really got after Homer, Homer hit the floor and he went home (laughs) and they counted him out. And it was a pretty easy win, you know. But uh, Homer's a manager, he's not a wrestler. And, uh, you know, and by leaving and running, he got more heat than if I'd have beat the heck out of him, I guess. So it wasn't a bad deal. And then the lights out match, uh, Carson won the match against Rob, but both of them were bleeding when it was over. It was a tremendous match. Gosh, they had the crowd so good. Uh, and it was exactly what a lights out match was supposed to be. I mean, you both guys bleeding in a hard fought. probably 30 past 30 minutes. Uh, we recorded that one, too. We're, we're going to have some stuff to show in the next program that's going to lead us forward. Uh, and you ask about the other cities that are running that week. Uh, Maryville, Tennessee, about 30 miles outside of Knoxville, we ran on a Monday night. We wrestled in uh, the Coliseum on Sunday. We go just 30 miles out of town on Monday. We wrestle in the National Guard Army there. First time we'd ever been there. Southeastern, never been there. It's a small little town. We still had over 1,000 people. A pretty good night for a brand new town. Uh, this Tuesday night, we're back up there in Johnson City where we were every Tuesday night. Crowds were continuing to grow there. We're getting close to 2,000. That's a capacity supposedly for that building. But we're going to turn that into a 3,000-seat building before it's over. We're going to put some 3,000 crowds in there. But we're about to hit 2,000 up there in Johnson City. Thursday, we wrestled for the first time ever in a town called Barberville, Kentucky, in in a high school gym, one of those gymnasiums that I had set up. Gym was almost full. Pretty good sized gym too, and a great crowd for the first night. Friday night, we're in another new town, La Follette, Tennessee, in another high school gym. And it's almost full. Things are beginning to happen. Uh, and it's a big, La Follette had a big high school gym. And, uh, so, and then on Saturday night, we're going to go up there close to Gatlinburg in Sevierville, Tennessee. It'll be the fourth city in that week that uh, we were in new towns that Southeastern had never been to. All these towns were like I talked about a couple of programs ago, virgin towns. We didn't want to do too much. We wanted to just do a lot of wrestling and create fans, and uh, we really
2: accomplished it uh, in that week. So what was uh, Southeastern's total attendance figure and payoffs for the third week in January of 1976?
1: Well, let's see. Coliseum started off on Sunday with about 4,000 people. We're right up there in the biggest so far. We're continuing to grow. Uh, we're not nearly where we're going to be, but four thousand. It, it was. It looked like a pretty decent crowd in that big old building, and uh, you know we we did a little better there because we could charge a little more. We charged more for all the coliseum shows, so uh, ticket prices were up a dollar above the regular prices that we had, and gross uh, house was up there around fifteen thousand. It was. One of the best ones I'd seen so far yet, uh, the other five cities that we ran had 6,000 total fans for the week. Total attendance for Southeastern for that week was about 10,000 fans. Uh, Around uh, $30,000 gross. Coliseum show had 17 total guys on it. The other smaller towns had around 13 guys on it. Total payoff to all the wrestlers and the referees was about 8,500, somewhere in that that range. And uh, the average for each of the guys – if you average the payout, was about $600 each. That don't sound like much, but we're talking 1976. It actually equals to about $2,700 in today's money. So that's not a bad week for uh, guys back in the 76. If, if you're uh, taking on that kind of money, guys were happy with it. They were also happy with how close all those towns were. First town, that's Maryville, is 30 miles. Sevierville is only 40 I mean, uh, you know, these towns are so close to Knoxville. It's unbelievable for them. So if you're going to compare miles driven to other territories in Florida, they would have done 2000 miles that week, mid Atlantic out of Charlotte, probably 2,500. If you're working in the Western United States, those guys were running around 3000 miles a week. So, uh, you know, we did a total that week of 600 miles round trip. It was unbelievable. So, you know, the money was probably enough, but the fact that these guys only had to drive 600 a week and they could spend that much more time with their families, it, it made that territory start to have a great reputation. Guys were calling around talking to other, pe- other guys and saying, "Hey, we only traveled 600 miles for the week, made 600 bucks." So you know,
2: it, it's what helped me uh, build this territory and help
1: me get this thing off the ground really going.
2: Okay, so now let's take a break and go to David Summers as he talks about Super Studcast number 25. Ron Fuller, hockey entrepreneur.
0: It is difficult to start a sports team or business and be successful, even when you know everything about that sport. To be able to accomplish that with no background in the sport is unbelievable. That's exactly what Ron did in 1989 in Nashville and 1990 in Cincinnati with two different hockey teams. Fascinating Super Studcast number 25 reveals how it was done at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This history lesson is not only about hockey or wrestling it is about the mind and creativity of a remarkable human being whose life story has been success this three-hour podcast takes you step by step on a journey that includes developing a spectacular game introduction that has become a tradition in sports all over the world at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99 hockey fan or not you will hear history that you will never forget settle up for astonishment
2: Okay, Ron, you said you would like to say a few words about this unique Superstudcast number 25, about your hockey experience after retiring from wrestling.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh, you know, I, I would like to say something. Because this is the first Superstudcast I've ever done that really doesn't focus entirely on wrestling. And a lot of fans probably aren't aware of that in my case, I had life after wrestling. I, You know, when my wrestling career ended, I didn't just uh, fade away. I went into something else and I went into hockey and, uh, People, you know, they know the ones that know me well say, you know, darn, you Ron, you were maybe more successful and even more creative in hockey than you were in wrestling. So and the comments I've had from fans that have listened to this Super Studcast number twenty-five, basically about my minor league hockey teams and and what I did in hockey that is going to have an effect on the way teams introduced themselves worldwide. So uh you know, I'm, I'm proud of that. And, uh, you know, and, and I'd like for fans, if they, if they're interested in, uh, in listening to this one, I think you'll find it to be a very interesting program. And before I get off of the subject, if they're interested in seeing something about, uh, and I'd always like to do this if I can, if they're interested in seeing uh, something about what I did in hockey, uh, they can look on YouTube and, uh, they can search for Ron Fuller bringing hockey to the South. Uh, I think that's the way it's set up. And, uh, and they they may find that to be interesting too, uh, and uh, so that's a. I just want to have the opportunity to tell fans that this one I think is maybe one one of the best uh, super stud cast I've done. Well, they just keep getting better, Ron. So where are we going now? Well, Jeff, uh, I think it's time to have a seat under the learning tree, my man. I want to thank fans uh, for their tremendous. Response to my first two Learning Tree segments uh, last week, I took that 1976 uh, trip uh, in the territories across the country, uh, and and compared their live events and their television audience to today's largest wrestling company. Uh, gosh, I've had some great comments about that, and uh, and then you know about the same time I received a question from a fan named Jack Larson that. Fits kind of perfectly with last week's learning tree. Uh, so, and his question was so simple. His question was, "What happened to wrestling?" And uh, and that's what I'm going to try to my best to answer here today. Uh, I want to answer to Jack and and fans out there. In my opinion, what happened to wrestling to get it where it's at today. So to answer this one, I need to go back much further than 1976, where I was talking about last week. Uh, I, I'm going to focus on just two things here that I really believe answered this question. And uh, and obviously, the question is, what happened to Rusty? The two things that brought it down, in my opinion, are the destruction of the territories and breaking kayfabe and you know there's probably a lot more of them but but in my opinion these two were critical in in wrestling being where it is today in order to do this right i want to tell my story today based upon my family's history in the sport i come from the oldest and largest professional wrestling family on the planet uh, the welches are, you know more than 20 of us you know i mean there's there's no there's no family in professional wrestling that can come close to the numbers that my family comes from. My grandfather, I want to start back with him in 1924. He was lucky enough to to be trained by a guy named Dutch Mantell out in the West that was a tremendous shooter, and Roy Roy was tough anyway, and he was lucky enough and tough enough to get a spot in one of the very first territories in America. It was based out of Columbus, Ohio, and he learned his craft very well and uh, decided after a couple of years there, that he wanted to build his own territory. So he drove south, you know, and uh, he ends up in in, uh, Tennessee. You know, he's going to establish his territory eventually in Nashville, Tennessee, but he's going to open that territory in 1930. And at that point in time, there's very few professional wrestling matches anywhere in the country. Uh, so to get his wrestlers, he kind of gathered shooters that he had met in Ohio and then from Texas, and, and then Dutch Mantel could pass names along to him. And if he couldn't find enough shooters that were recommended to him, he trained his own shooters because he, he was down tough and he knew how to do it. Uh, so he ended up having the talent that he needed. He self-made his own wrestlers kind of in a way. His territory took him about 30 years to build. To, to where it's going to be when it's at its, its height and its biggest, you know, and he built that sucker with blood, sweat, and, and maybe a few tears. I don't think he cried a whole lot knowing Roy, but you know, there had to be some tears in that too. Other shooters and wrestlers in the country began to create their own territories during this time frame. professional wrestling is going to explode. And this is way back in its early days in its infancy. Eventually, over many years, from the 1920s to the 1940s, territories are starting to pop up everywhere across America. The NWA gets formed in 1948. That's a huge step in structuring promotions and in regulating the sport. I mean, it was a governing body that that you wanted to become a part of because they're going places, and, and they and they want to. They know how to do it, and and everybody involved in it is great teachers of the sport and and great role models for future promoters and people that want to get in the business. My grandfather was there. He was in 1948. He was one of the founders of the National Wrestling Alliance. And it was a struggle, not only to build his territory, but... Maybe a bigger struggle to keep your territory back in those days, you know, because you had everybody that started wanting to become promoters. Now, And he had worked his butt off to get his thing going. And, uh, you know, he he wanted to keep other guys out if he could. And you couldn't blame him for it. He had worked hard to get it there. Why would he let somebody just walk in and take it from him? So other early founders of territories, they're experiencing the same things themselves. So Roy's a smart guy. He only had a fifth grade education, but he was a brilliant man. He figured a way to protect his territory and he did it by starting these athletic commissions. He was running 12 states in the south at one time, and he had these athletic commissions in all those states. And he set those commissions up, he approved who was on beyond the commission, he controlled the members of the commission, and he paid them a small percentage of the gate from his cities that he ran. So. It was considered to be a state tax, but, you know, in most cases, a lot of the members of those commissions kept some of the money, you know. He didn't care because they were protecting him. Other territories, they picked up on it. How it was done. Maybe he talked to him. You know, that's the NWA. He uh, had these meetings and people talked. The big owners got together and they put their heads together and they they figured out and what worked and they passed it along to other guys. It was a cooperative effort. The NWA was at first. Uh, this you know the athletic commissions worked well. You know. He could control him. It was great for him. And they were protecting his territory and they were turning down other promoters that wanted to get in and get their license to promote. And uh, they were basically helping him to perpetuate his monopoly over wrestling in 12 states. He had it going and uh, they were going to help him to to be the only guy. But as time went by and he grew older and older, the members of these athletic commissions that he'd handpicked, they started dying off and he lost control. And it was kind of at that point that he was no longer the master. He became the puppet for these state athletic commissions and they no longer protected him as they used to, but instead they started to allow other guys to get little licenses here and license in there. And then they wanted to get bigger percentage of the gate. And, uh, these athletic commissions were all over the country by then. They they were everywhere. Every state had figured out, Hey, this is the way we make a little money. And so, uh, The saddest part of this Athletic Commission story is uh, it's going to be an integral part in what happens to wrestling. It's one of the things that I think... took wrestling under, but it was in a uh, very unusual way that this happens. Uh, uh, And it's going to be because someone that's going to get immense power in this profession uh, is going to do something unthinkable. And uh, we're going to get to that part of the story and and a little bit later, but uh, I want to talk about all these wrestlers. Now you've got all these wrestlers and some that aren't wrestlers that are owners of territories and they've had tremendous success for 50 years. Since 1930 into the 80s, they've just grown. They've protected the sport. They've gotten along with each other remarkably well. They've done a fantastic job of making wrestling one of the most popular sports on the planet. Everything was rosy in wrestling into the 80s. Uh, but then something happened that definitely changed the sport forever. And it was a part of the answer that to the question for Jack today that he asked. Uh, and what happened, man, was one greedy promoter in the media capital of the world, New York City, got wrestling on national TV for the first time since the early 1950s. There had been some people on TV when TV was being the dawn of television, let's call it. There, they got, there was national programs. Jim Barnett had the Dumont network in the uh, Midwest and a huge amount of people were getting his television program. But all that kind of died off. And then the territories had their own TVs and he didn't have much competition. Television stations weren't overrunning one another. It was a sweet business and it just exploded. Everybody ran their business differently, but it was good just about everywhere. So when this guy gets this TV, I'd had a shot at the TV myself, this national opportunity, 19 to 85, with my Continental Wrestling. I had a media company out of Houston, Texas, that discovered my program. And they placed my program for me in the Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. My show was being seen in the Middle East back in 85, 86. They had these great connections, not just in the Middle East, but in New York City. And they sent me a plane ticket, and they flew me to New York City. And I sat down with a major network there. They was interested in a national show. They watched one of my continental programs, uh, the entire show. Me and the people from Houston sat there with them, and they and and they thought it was. They, in fact, I think the words that one of them used is, "This is just what we've been looking for," and uh, and you know they they said it's it's so different than what we see here in New York and it was different from what was going on in New York uh we were the old southern style wrestling and uh, and a lot of uh, great programs and angles and it, there was a different style between southern wrestling and northern wrestling and uh, so i leave New York and and they're saying uh we're willing to give you this they they wanted they were i could have had it before the guy that got big so I went home, and I asked myself, uh, going on the trip back home on the plane, uh, what's going to happen to my relationships with other owners in the NWA if if I take this? And my first thought was, I, I would involve all the territories, I, I wouldn't, and certainly I wouldn't destroy them. You know, I, I would I would have made it be something good for everybody in the NWA. You know, I would have used their stars, the entire territories, all of them. And make those stars stronger on this television program, uh, and that, and I would showcase it by and by uh, bringing in the having these big, huge events in in uh, stadiums throughout the country, and let each one of these territories have their own show. Not be so, you know, greedy that I wanted to make a lot of money off of other guys. I would have liked to, have, I would have taken it and made everybody a part of it. But then, uh, you know, and and I would have got the cooperation probably of the NWA. And, uh, you know, if I'd have have been able to do that, obviously, that television show would have been Imagine if you had the Funks on there and if you had Dusty Rhodes on there. And if you had the uh, Flares on there and all these guys on there, there's no way there would be a television program that could have competed with it. Um, I could have produced the super shows in the stadiums, like I just mentioned, and uh, everybody would have benefited from it. Not just me, but uh, uh, all the other promoters and and the wrestlers, too, at the same time. So, you know, if I'd have done that, no telling where wrestling would have been today. It would have been certainly different than what it is. But in the end, I I made the decision that this might be going to make me a whole lot of enemies. And I was doing good. My company was doing good. I was making money. I had been making money for several years. And I thought, uh, I, I might not be happy if I put myself in this position. So uh, I, I, turned, I turned them down, you know, and, and in retrospect, um, maybe I shouldn't have. But uh, then along comes a, a, another guy who's going to form the biggest wrestling company in the world. And he's going to take that national television program. And he's going to be in everybody's territory, regardless of how they feel about it, because it's a national show. It's going to be shown everywhere. And, uh, and he could have easily done what I was thinking about doing and left everybody else alone or involved them even better and make them a part of it. And still he would have been the, if just if he'd have left everybody alone, he'd have been the most powerful person in wrestling. He could have allowed some of the owners to continue operating their companies, and uh, and do the same himself. Just leave wrestling as it was. Just I got a national program. You got your own territories. Let's all be profitable. Let's all flourish. Let's make wrestling huge. Instead, he decides he wants to own all of wrestling. He decides and he sets his sights first on the next thing that I think caused uh, wrestling to be. to to answer the question, what happened to Russing? He sets his sights on the territories and the destruction of the territories, not just the territories. Uh, He don't want the territories to be there anymore. And, And he goes another step. He designs a diabolical plan of how to do it and how to make it happen. And what he did is he focused on the best talent, from each territory, and he lured those guys, one guy here out of this territory, one guy out of that territory, and he basically buys them. In many cases, the territories, you know, where the stars came from, he he buys those stars from them, he lures them away with money, and then he goes right back in and runs against those territories, and he takes those same guys that were developed and built by somebody else and he invades their territory with those guys and he uses their own guys to kill their territory, to be the murderers, you know? Uh, so, and, and he don't just do it in one territory. He invades territories with impunity across America. He's soon wrestling and wrestlers and fans that, that have loved wrestling and grown accustomed and uh, the, the, you know, the wrestling and their wrestlers started to disappear everywhere across the country, he had no sympathy, he had no respect, he had no compassion for the fans nor the owners of territories. If he couldn't kill some territories easily, he just kept coming back, invading again and again until good men, all of, a lot of these guys were good men uh, that had built the sport into something special, they finally had to walk away from the life that meant everything to them. That's a sad thing right there. It's a terrible thing when you have, for me, I'll just use me as an example. You know, I grew up in in wrestling. I saw my dad successful all his life. He was in it all his life. My grandfather was in it all his life. I thought it was going to be that way for me. Almost overnight, the sport that had flourished for 60 years, fantastic talent. Fantastic crowds, fantastic television audience, and fantastic minds that made all that happen. They disappeared, and the sport was replaced by something far inferior. Now, I'm about finished. But I have one more thing that I think answers the question of what happened to wrestling. Let's go back to my grandfather's day again, and in those days, all wrestlers were shooters. They knew how to hurt each other, and uh, you know they knew how to they, they had a real knowledge of wrestling in its purest form. Uh, and it was about the time frame that matches were beginning to occasionally have predecided endings. And and that that's what we got finishes. That's where that name comes from. Is way back in the day they decided who was going to win the match. It was necessary in those days because the wrestlers were so tough, and and the sport was so good. And you didn't punch, and you didn't flip flop and fly like they do now. You wrestled on the mat, and guys got hurt. You know, it, even if when you didn't want to hurt somebody, you hurt them. It happened. And when it, when it, it just, these shoots, matches were almost like shoots. They were producing injuries. And all these injuries prohibited the growth of the sport. Guys are down and out. And the great wrestlers aren't able to wrestle for months. So it was about that time that the word kayfabe became a part of the sport. These tough guys thought if the fans were aware of this, they might never come again, that their sport might never grow. So it was vital. It was vital back in those early days to give people as much real wrestling as possible without injury to each other. And that time, if you broke kayfabe, told anybody what was going on, you brought peril on your life. I mean, there were guys in the business that they, they would break your arms and your, your legs and, and other body parts too. If, uh, if you said anything about kayfabe. you know, you went out and, and did anything to let people know. It, it, it just pains me to even think what my grandfather uh, did to some of the so-called wrestlers that he probably came upon that had broke K. Fabe in his territory. Oh gosh man, <laughs> I can't imagine what he did to him. Uh, it was critical. It was, this K Fabe was critical to the development of the sport. Uh, the way wrestlers worked and bled from hard ways, it gave fans a reason. And if that wasn't enough, in some cases, it gave them the desire to believe. They wanted to believe. And without belief, wrestling was not the same. Uh, you know, for those who believe, no explanation was necessary. For those that didn't, no explanation was good enough. So, you know, kayfabe was it. It, it, it was crucial. It was critical. Now, that brings us to <laughs> back to the boxing and wrestling commissions uh, that I spoke about earlier. Uh, They they proliferated. They were everywhere. And when this new owner decided to take over the country, he had to deal with all that. His commission, He might have killed off the territories and the promoters, but he didn't kill the commissions. He had now accomplished his goal, his diabolical plan. Everything was his now. He couldn't get around all this athletic commissions. And uh, and and they were still there every time he ran a live event. They were taking a little bit from these houses, but uh, when you're greedy, uh, that's too much. <laughs> Anything is too much. When you're a greedy person, you don't want to lose any of it or give it to somebody else. So the owner of this new wrestling in America in 1989 tried to legislatively abolish the tax in the state of New Jersey. And it came down to a moment that I think destroyed wrestling as we knew it. Both he and his wife, They committed the unpardonable sin. They testified under oath that wrestling wasn't real. They said, it's just an exhibition, and therefore, you can't tax us. You know, that's a, gosh, a mighty, I, I can't imagine what my grandfather it must have done when, when, you know, if he ever found out about this. Ultimately, their bid to, to cut the taxes and to, and to kill the athletic commission, it didn't even work. So basically, they had broke kayfabe. The biggest man in wrestling broke kayfabe just to save a few dollars. And he cut the legs out from underneath the sport that was already barely standing because of him. It was just barely there anyway. He took the genie out of the bottle. He killed the respect of true wrestling fans all over the world, not just in this country. And maybe worst of all, he trashed the credibility of thousands of great wrestlers that came before him that had given their lives to the sport they love. So, uh, Mr. Jack Larson, that's what I think happened to wrestling.
2: I have a few questions as a follow-up here. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to play uh, alternative viewpoint and you tell me what you think of this, because I've, I've, you know, heard people talk about uh, what that particular promoter did and the impact of course, that it had uh, on wrestling. Let's just play hindsight is 2020. What if it hadn't been that guy? What if it had been another promoter? Now this promoter in question, he's in the media capital of the world. You had another promoter that was up in the upper Midwest who uh, a lot of people talked about how he wanted to take his company national. Uh, what if that company in the upper Midwest uh, that had already started making inroads into the uh, California area, they were out in Colorado, uh, they were they were going outside the upper Midwest. What if another promoter had tried it? I'm, okay, I know who you're talking about. Okay, I don't think it hurts anything to
1: tell the the, the let's, let's just put the cards on the table. By golly, uh, you're talking about Vern Gagne. Yep. Okay. So you know, I'm gonna tell you the gosh, guys. You know, I'm trying my trying to control myself here. Not it, it fly. The really, <laughs> uh, uh, burn There's a dramatic difference between Vern Gagne and Vince McMahon Jr. And you know what it is? Vern Gagne was an Olympic wrestler, and Vince Jr. never put this feet in the ring until he was, you know, he, until he had to help his own company to survive. Uh, Vern would have handled it differently. The sport would have been taken care of differently. He would have had r- different type of matches. He would have, uh, he would have done things differently. And I believe uh, it, even if he had killed the territories that it, it, the product would have been better, had it had been Vern rather than who it was. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to avoid talking about him and saying his name even, uh, because, uh, I'm so emotionally involved in this issue, uh, as the wrestling fans in this country are, uh, you know, there's a lot of, lot of, uh, uh, old school wrestling fans that are very angry about what happened to their wrestling. Uh, and I, this Mr. Larson here, you know, I, I see his point. It's a great question, you know, and, uh. And I, I hope that I answered it. And uh, and no, no, I've tried that's to probe myself. Let me myself ask you a
2: second question now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you a second question. Second question in the alternative viewpoint uh, is that the promoters who had their wrestlers leave their area, okay? And, and I'm going to use an example, okay? The story has always been that part of the reason why Hulk Hogan left that, you know, Vern Gagne in Minneapolis. Is that uh, there was a pay dispute involving uh, residuals on stuff like T-shirts and things like that? Okay, so if a promoter is not paying a wrestler what he's worth, and the other promoter is offering him more, is the wrestler wrong for leaving that promoter? No,
1: I don't blame the wrestlers. I, I, no, I don't blame the wrestlers. Uh, you know, I, I blame the I blame the guy that did it. I, I blame the diabolical mind that says, "Let me pay him more and get him." And then get control of other people's companies, and that part of it is what bothers me. That guy you just mentioned, Hulk Hogan. You know where first place he wrestled? I believe it might have been Southeastern, my friend. Darn right. Yeah, he wrestled for me in Southeastern, and uh, you know it, uh I didn't. I didn't worry about those type of things, uh, and I, and like I said, I don't blame the wrestlers. I, I blame the person responsible for. Uh, using those wrestlers in a way that they should have never been used. I guess that's a good way of putting it. And uh, that's basically it, Mr. Larson. I, I, hope, I, I hope I've I uh, hope managed to, uh, to explain uh, at least my opinion
2: of what has happened to wrestling. Okay. So as we begin to wrap up uh, on Facebook, you can like uh, the Ron Fuller the Tennessee Stud page, and automatically you become friends with a legend on Twitter, Ron uh, at Ron Fuller Welch, Super Studcast number 25. Learn how Ron blends wrestling and hockey, become famous in two sports at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Ron, where are we going next week?
1: Well, we're going to crown the first ever Southeastern heavyweight champion. I'm going to retire the Tennessee tag championship belts and I'm going to replace those suckers with uh Southeastern tag team championship belts. And uh, then we're going to, in the next learning tree uh, I'm going to continue kind of in the direction of today's episode. I hope I hope I can control myself, but uh, I, I had another great question and uh, and I'm going to answer another question uh, that that was, uh, would I compare the Welch family to the McMahons, you know, and I, uh, and then I'm going to get away from from uh, WWF or E or, or whatever it is, and uh, and we're going to go to other subjects. But uh, I'm going to uh, one more time go back and talk just a little bit about. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to try to answer that question. How would I compare the Welch family to the McMahons? Uh So uh, I'm going to call that one uh, next week. The Learning Tree, the Tale of Two Families. <laughs> And uh, before we go, I, I just want to thank everybody out there that that listens and for riding with me today. And uh, may God bless us all.
2: All right. So, for uh, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, for our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, I'm Jeff Baldron. Uh, the Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And until next week, when the ride continues. Thanks for
0: joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud.
1: One, two, three.
0: This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.